Thank you, Millard. What a wonderful song, too, God's grace. Aren't we thankful for God's grace? Someday when we stand in the day of judgment, we'll praise God for his grace. You know, this uh, flu, and not only flu, but a lot of other respiratory things are going around. We see some empty seats today, and we know some of our people are sick. So let me exhort you to be in special prayer for our brothers and sisters who are facing those illnesses at this time. Sometimes, or perhaps often, we hear Jesus Christ referred to as prophet, priest, and king. And all three of those titles are very appropriate. You recall in Deuteronomy 13 that Moses said, There will come a day in which God will raise up from your own countrymen a prophet just like me. And then later on, two verses later, God confirms, yes, Moses, I will someday raise up a prophet just like you from your countrymen, and I will put in his mouth the words that he will speak, and he will speak my words. And so the Jews looked forward throughout the centuries for that prophet that would replace Moses. And in time, that prophet came, Jesus Christ. Remember when John the Baptist began preaching, the Jewish leaders, so impressed by the anointing this man had and his prophetic gifts, said, Are you the one? No, he said, I'm not the one. The one who's coming after me, I'm not even worthy to untie the laces on his shoe. But that one that was coming was Jesus Christ, the great prophet of God. Now, the word prophecy in Greek is pestuel, rather prophetuel, and in uh, Greek, navi, and it really means to speak forth. And so a prophet of God is one who speaks forth the word of God. And so anytime we are speaking forth the word of God, in essence, we are prophesying because we're speaking forth that which God has given. And Jesus Christ did that. Remember, he said, I don't say anything that I haven't heard the Father saying. The words that I give are the words that God has given to me. And so Jesus Christ truly is appropriately called prophet. He is also appropriately called priest. Uh, Chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 in the book of Hebrews, that whole central section, the theme that constantly flows through it is the priesthood of Jesus. Speaking of his high priesthood, the offering that he brings, everything related to that priesthood. Jesus Christ indeed fits the role of priest. And when he went to the cross, he himself as the priest offered himself unto God for us. What's a priest? A priest is one who represents people to God, intercedes for people with God. And Jesus Christ surely did that. King, Indeed, Scripture says everything will come into subjection to him. 1 Corinthians 15 says everything will come into subjection to him. When all that happens and the last enemy is dead, then he'll hand it back to God, the Father, the kingdom. In the book of Revelation, we find one scene in which Jesus Christ is described as having on the, the leg of his britches, so to speak, King of kings and Lord of lords. Indeed, it is appropriate to label him king. I was thinking about this past week. Does that in any way apply to us? Remember the apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. 
Henceforth it is not I that liveth, but the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, Paul said, when you see me, you're not seeing me, you're seeing Jesus. He also wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Some versions say, imitate me as I'm imitators of Christ. Some say, be followers of me as I'm a follower of Jesus. What Paul was saying is, it's my heart at least that when you see me, you don't see me. You see Jesus Christ. In the world today, the church is the body of Christ. We're the kingdom of God. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. In one sense, we're Christ himself incarnated in the world today. In that sense, we also have that role of being prophets, priests, kings. Revelation 1, 6 says, some versions say he has made us to be kings and priests. The Greek word there is basilia. Basilia normally means kingdom. And all of your more recent translations have read it that way. He has made us to be a kingdom and priest, not kings in the sense that Jesus Christ is king. Although we do have that picture in the book of Revelation that in the time of the millennium it says we shall reign with him. But that, of course, is far different from being a ruler. Let's think about the roles this morning of prophet and priest that we have as we are his agents, his body, really in a sense incarnated, that when people see us, they will see Jesus Christ. A prophet is one who speaks forth the word of God. You know, that's really relevant to us as we are now emphasizing evangelism. Those of us who are around in the very earliest days of TCF, Remember that that was the single reputation of this church, evangelism. I can remember reading in the Tulsa World uh, in the early 1970s, and it just seemed that you would get the newspaper in the morning to read about who had died of an overdose the night before and who had been found on Peoria and arrested for dealing drugs and also what TCF did the night before. It was big news. And meeting in schoolhouses and using the swimming pool as a baptistry uh, how, uh, rather, uh, Brother Hudson one day was quoted. He said, you know, we're the only church in the world that has to have a lifeguard on hand when we baptize people. Because using the school swimming pool, the insurance company required that there be a lifeguard there. And so TCF was well known for that. And, and hundreds of people, really hundreds, were immersed in those swimming pools during those days as people came to Christ. The uh, rumor stories told about Chuck Farah. Chuck, you know, being a Presbyterian scholar, came to realize that the biblical pattern is immersion, and so he asked to be immersed and was. And then he decided he wanted to immerse. And the first time he got in the swimming pool, he had on, you know, waders. And instead of doing this way, he did this way, and water filled the waders, and they had to rescue Chuck. <laughs> but those were marvelous days, and what a wonderful thing. Today, someday, when we stand before God in heaven, there will be hundreds and hundreds of people that are there in the kingdom of Jesus because of those early days when TCF that was its identity. 
bringing the lost into the kingdom. It's a joyous thing to think that God is renewing that call upon us in this time. If there's anything we've lacked in recent years, that's been it. Praise God. By the Holy Spirit, we're going to see a real move in that direction. But let me talk about that. It's important when we go forth and evangelize that we don't talk about psychology, we don't talk about philosophy, but we present the gospel of Jesus. That the Holy Spirit anoint us in such a way that we can cause people to come to realize the horror of sin and the fact that they're damned to hell unless something is done to pull them out of that path that's leading to eternal destruction. That must be upon our heart. But we can only do that as the Holy Spirit anoints us. Remember Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians describing his time in Corinth. You read, you read of Paul's ministry, and in some places there were huge miracles, like Ephesus, so many you could hardly count them. But when he got to Corinth, evidently there were none. He said, the Greeks seek after wisdom, and the Jews seek after signs. The Greek word is semine, which means confirming signs, miracles. But he said, we preach Christ crucified, which to the Greeks is foolishness, and to the Jews a stumbling block. And then in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, writing about that, he says, it was not through persuasive speech but rather it was the anointing or the power of the Holy Spirit. When we go forth to evangelize, let us begin our activity constantly. Lord, please anoint me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the word of God that this person needs to hear, which may be slightly different from that person, but let it be the word of God and let your anointing be upon it and open their heart that they'll receive the deliverance that's available to them in Christ Jesus. You know, when God's involved, we get surprised. For many years, I preached evangelistic meetings. Usually, every spring, every fall, I'd be somewhere preaching an evangelistic meeting. <clears throat> One time, I was in a place called New Corinth, Kentucky. Now, we'd say Corinth, but they called it New Corinth. <laughs> and New Corinth was a community on a hillside, and there was a marvelous, beautiful valley. The, the hills went down one side and up the other, and in the bottom there was a gorgeous uh, stream that flowed. This was a very remote place. And uh, when it came time for me to go preach that meeting, I said, how do I find New Corinth? Well, drive to Powersville, and then start looking for your picture on trees revival posters and just just follow your picture through the woods <laughs> and I did that and I ended up at New Corinth these these hills were so steep they could not uh, it was hay season that particular time they couldn't run equipment and so we had to cut I helped uh, you know with hay helped cut it with a sign and with a pitchfork putting it on the wagon it was truly another world <laughs> that we were in at New Corinth well, during the daytime, some, I would, some days at least, I'd travel along the path, walk along the path by the creek, and you'd come, there'd be a path going back in the woods, and there'd be a cabin. I'd go back and talk to people about Jesus. I came to this one cabin, 
And it was just like a picture for little Abner. Probably most of you aren't old enough to remember little Abner. But if you are, here was a woman with a corncob pipe barefooted sitting on the porch. Two boys with uh, overalls on. I think one of them had a gallus loose, you know, sitting down there barefooted too. They began to talk to them about Christ, invite them to, oh, we don't need church. We don't need that Christian stuff. In other words, please get away and leave us alone. A couple of nights later, actually during the day, it started to rain. And that night, as I was preaching, in the midst of the sermon, the back door burst open and these two guys came in screaming, crying, fell on the floor. Oh, God's getting them because the creek was rising and getting over their tobacco bed. God didn't leave them alone. <laughs> they got converted. You see, I could not have done it, but God did it with the rain. We need to realize we're not in this game alone. We're not in this game alone. I told some of you about some of the experiences I've had over the years that have just been surprising to see how God has worked. For many years, I tried to knock on 30 doors a week, and I saw almost no results. But I had friends who did the same thing, and they had amazing results. Some of you of old days remember Rob Kirby that was here. His father, Bob, was amazing. He could go into a, a uh, place where there were mobile homes, knock on doors, get them to agree to have a Bible study. People from the trailer park would come in, and they'd come to Jesus. I was never able to do that. I tried. But God used me in other ways. Across the street from us, there was a man named Terry. Terry worked in a body shop. His dad was a mechanic. And we became friends. And we started working on cars together. Whenever he knocked on the door, and I answered it, and he said, Jim, I knew we were going to work on cars. If he said, Brother Garrett, I knew he and his wife had had a fight, and they needed me to arbitrate. So I knew how he approached me is what was going to happen that day. <laughs> But because we worked on brakes, we worked on fuel pumps, we worked on cars together, that man, his wife, his two sons, his mother and father all came to Jesus Christ. Not through my evangelizing, but my getting greasy and God using a friendship. I've told some of you about a man named Bob who we used to, we, on Monday nights, we'd always go out calling and Bob was a man who had great hostility to the church. He didn't want anybody knocking on his door. And so what he would do, if somebody from the church would come and knock on his door, he'd get them to come in. Then he would physically try to make them drink beer so nobody would ever come back. I started coaching a ball team. I coached baseball and football for several years. And it happened one year, Bob and I were coaching together. And the very first thing, he said, I want to see how good you are. Get up to the plate. And I got up to the plate, and he threw a pitch, and I hit it to deep left field. He threw another pitch. I hit it to deep center field. He threw another pitch. I hit it to deep right field. Now, I'm not that good, but got it a bullseye on Bob. <laughs> Man, you're good, he said. And I'll tell you, I was so surprised. One Sunday, he came in, this, all the singing, praying was over. I was getting ready to preach. Here came Bob, his wife, people. What is he doing in church? So I delayed, and a few days I went by, and he said, Jimmy, I don't know what's happening to me, but I was driving down Southwest Boulevard last week, and 
Well, I almost called you and told you I wanted to be baptized. Now, Jimmy, you know me. This coming Sunday, I'm going to be there. And when you offer that invitation, I'm coming down the aisle. And you know me. I won't be perfect, but I sure as hell going to try. And that's exactly what happened. Through coaching baseball, one summer, 24 people came into the kingdom of God because I coached baseball. I didn't preach. I was just trying to be a good coach. And one by one, God would have this family have trouble. They would talk to me. One by one, 24 people one summer came into the church because I coached baseball. <laughs> now, that's the way God used me, and he probably will use you in different ways. But what a joy to know that if we have the Word of God within us and we have the Holy Spirit within us, that God can use us in ways we could never imagine or plan or even make happen as we're willing to be used of Him in every way that he chooses. But it is important, fulfilling that prophetic world in evangelism, that we speak the word of God. There are so many human contrivances today that are used and place the word of God. First of all is the gospel. People have to be convicted of sin. They have to come to believe that the way out is through Jesus, and then they ask, what do I do? And the only answer you find after Pentecost is repent, be immersed into Jesus Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, and then go forth to live in that empowerment that you have. As I say, there are a lot of human contrivances, a lot of things other than that, but that's the only word of God we have after the day of Pentecost, and that's the age in which we live today. It is important that we be filled with the Holy Spirit, have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, but have upon our lips the Word of God. Another aspect of being God's prophetic body in the world, we need to not be afraid to call sin, sin. And we'll probably be a price for that. Bill brought that up last week will probably sometime pay a price for that. I, I've mentioned before in a sermon, a minister in Canada, this was about two years ago, and in a sermon he said homosexuality is a cancer on the body of the human race. And he was arrested, jailed, and fined for hate speech. You know, that may happen to us, but we can't shut up about it, can we? We have to call sin, sin. We've mentioned before from the pulpit, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. That is one of the most dire passages in all of God's Word, in which it says, when people refuse to acknowledge God as God, then he just took his hand off and let culture go its own way. You read Romans 1, 18 to the end of the chapter, and you will find an exact description of American culture today. It's there. Does that can only mean to me God, to a degree at least, has removed his hand. How tragic that is. How tragic that is. But if we are truly the prophetic voice, the one who speaks forth the word of God, 
We must not stop. We must not be afraid to. We must not hedge on calling sin, sin. In Ezekiel 13, I believe it is, there's really a very heavy, heavy section. Actually, it's repeated two places in Ezekiel. If a righteous man turns to sin and you do not rebuke him and he dies in his sin, then his blood will be upon you. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? Now, if you rebuke him, even if he doesn't repent, you have delivered your own soul. And that's something to think about. Isn't it? What a heavy responsibility. If I see someone sinning that's going to lead them to hell, and I have the relationship that allows me. Now, notice this says a righteous man. That doesn't mean somebody on the corner, but a righteous person who we know is righteous, and they're starting to turn to sin, and I don't say anything, and they go to hell. Think about that. Their blood is going to be on me, whatever that means. <laughs> but that's a serious thing to think about, isn't it? As God's prophetic voice we need to call sin, sin. And when we see sin rising in the life of someone who is a Christian, we need to speak the word of God to them concerning that. So often we quote Hebrews chapter 10 concerning church attendance. Forsake not the assembling yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. But that next verse is so important. Because if we sin willfully after we have come to a knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for our sins. Why do we come to church on Sunday? I suppose all of us have various degrees of motivation. My number one motivation is to take of the Lord's Supper, to meet Jesus Christ in that loaf and cup. And it's a staggering thought. Isn't that a staggering thought to think that we actually partake of the body and blood of Christ. My second reason is to encourage you. I come to give and not get, and I, I think that's true of many of us. There's something about being encouraged when we are together that gives us a strength to say no to sin, regardless of how enticing it might be. There's something that is spiritually communicated by osmosis, shall we say, as our lives touch one another in the body of Christ. So those are my two real reasons, main reasons for coming, the Lord's Supper and to be an encouragement to, and to receive encouragement. There are some of you who have always been so encouraging to me, and it's not what you do, it's who you are. Isn't that a blessing? We just, just being with one another is encouraging regardless of what's said or done. And that gives us strength to say no to all the temptations the devil wants to put and entice us to turn to. It's important that we call sin, sin. And then what about priest? Priest is one, you remember, that goes to God in behalf of people that intercedes for those who are about him. 
A priest, a true priest, has to have the right heart. In Matthew 23, you recall our Lord Jesus rebuking the scribes and Pharisees. Now, so often in previous years, I thought that is Jesus shaking it, woe unto you. But in recent years, I've come to see that in a different way. I hear grief in the heart of Jesus. Oh, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Their heart was wrong, even though they had that role. Now, we need to remember that when Jesus said they had the wrong heart and he was speaking to others, you've omitted the weightier matters of the law, uh, justice and mercy and peace and so on. He said to the people, have the right heart, but you still are obligated to do what they said to do. Sometimes people miss that point. Oh, our heart's the only thing that counts. No, our heart is right, but we also have to obey the commands that are so clearly given, whatever those commands in the Word of God might be. Our Lord Jesus had such a tender heart. Matthew, we see a situation. Actually, this is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three synoptics. Present the time when Jesus came out and he looked at the multitudes and it says he grieved because they appeared to him. It says the people were grieving. It says they were wandering. One version says without direction. And he grieved and he said, they're like a bunch of sheep without a shepherd. His heart was touched. Don't we see humanity that way today? I've never in my life seen the world in such disarray, lost without direction, looking for something, and they don't know what they're looking for, and they find something, and that didn't it. Sheep without a shepherd. On two occasions, one was on the day of the triumphal entry, when Jesus came and rounded the Mount of Olives and paused and looked down on the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest those that are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thee unto myself as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings, but you would not. On another occasion, as he came and just beheld the city, Scripture says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. When he came before the tomb of Lazarus, the shortest verse in the Bible, if you're memorizing scripture, this is one a lot of kids like to memorize first. Jesus wept, two words. Shortest verse. But my, what a verse. He had come to the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus' relatives were weeping. No doubt there were also professional mourners because in those days they hired professional mourners to come and put on a show and the body of Lazarus was in the tomb our Lord was touched as he saw the sorrow in the hearts of the people as he saw the results of the sin of Adam that caused all of us to have to experience death and he wept that's the heart of a true priest. Sorrow and grief over those in despair and sin. If we go out to evangelize because we want to add more church members, we might as well be selling cars. 
That's the wrong reason. But if we go out and evangelize because God has given us a broken heart over those who are living in darkness and walk in the path to hell, we'll be like Jesus. That's the most important thing, isn't it? To be like Jesus. I don't know how it hits you, but it's hard for me at times to be out in public and see people that are obviously struggling so hard. Sometimes I'll be at a stop at a red light and someone is crossing the street and I can tell they're having a hard life. They look perhaps dirty and hungry. You look in their face and you don't see much there. Go to Walmart and just look at the people in Walmart and your heart is touched, but you can tell this one and that one. God has, I believe it's God, <laughs> has stirred me in recent days to often when parting with people say, may the Lord's blessing rest upon you today. Those are not words, that is my heart. May God's blessing rest upon you today. Does he touch you that way? Perhaps. But a true priest is one who has a broken heart for those for whom he intercedes. First John, we see this instruction about if you see a brother sinning a sin, and it's not a sin unto death, <laughs> pray for him and God will get. But then it says, but I don't tell you to pray for somebody who's committed a sin unto death. You know, how do I know when somebody has committed a sin unto death? <laughs> I'm just going to assume nobody has. <laughs> and so I continue to intercede and pray for that one who in some way is gripped by Satan. I do not put myself above any of you. I'm just telling you my own story today because that's the only way I know to tell it. Brothers and sisters, it's a great responsibility to have a prophetic role because when we're speaking, we better speak the word of God and we better get it right because someday we'll be given account if we don't. <laughs> And we better have the heart of Jesus to be like Jesus in everything. Earthly pleasures vainly call me. I would be like Jesus. Nothing in this world enthralls me. I would be like Jesus, be like Jesus, this my song, in the home and in the throng, be like Jesus all day long, I would be like Jesus, may that be true of all of us in his name. Amen.